This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. Last month, one of our listeners left this message in the On Point voicemail box. Hi, I'd like to hear more about the economy. I think we need the money ladies more often. There are problems. We got inflation. People are maxed out on their credit cards. Elders have no savings. And as they retire, they're going to be in poverty. And commercial real estate it has a big problem because people are working from home. So I think things are not good in the economy for many individuals and as a whole. So as I say, the money ladies, but I don't think the economy is as good as it might appear. That's Carol from Amherst, Massachusetts, and we've taken her up on that suggestion and invited the on-point money ladies, Michelle Singletary and Rana Faruhar, back on our show today. They're here to answer questions about the economy and tell us what we might expect in 2024. Michelle Singletary is personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. She writes the nationally syndicated column, The Color of Money. She's also author of the book, What to Do with Your Money When Crisis hits a survival guide. Michelle, welcome back to On Point. Oh, thank you for having me. And Rana Faruhar is a CNN global analyst and the Financial Times global business columnist and associate editor. She's also written several books, including Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World, and Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. Rana, welcome back to On Point. Oh, thanks so much. So Happy New Year to you both. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Year. So, uh, you know, Carol from Amherst, who called us, uh, talked about the elderly, debt, the commercial real estate glut, just some of the issues that we do hope to get to this hour. But I want to follow up on something that you said last year, Michelle, and that was your goal for 2023, which was paying off your mortgage. Did you do it? I did! Oh, congratulations! Yay! Yay. I I got rid of that bondage. Oh, my gosh! How'd you do it? Um, You know, over the years, my husband and I made monthly uh, principal payments to our mortgage. And then when we um, had windfalls, um, we would add that. And then the last part we did... Uh, we, we recast our mortgage, which basically we kept the terms, but we put a lump sum down and that brought it down. So that helped us in the last stretch of it. And part of the reason why we paid it off is my husband retired last year. And so we wanted to make sure we had a good cash flow at a time when the market was, um, you know, very challenged and we didn't want to have to have him tap his, he worked for the federal government, his TSP just yet. Mm-hmm. So there were all kinds of reasons why we paid it off early. And my goodness, it started a huge kerfuffle <laughs> when I wrote about it. People were like, what's wrong with you? Because we had a very low interest rate and people were just outraged that we got rid of our debt. And to them, I said, ta-ta-ta, that's for us. <laughs> and your credit score actually dropped, you wrote. Is that right? Yes. Hmm. I've had an 850 perfect credit score for several years and paid off my mortgage. And one month later, it dropped. I was hmm. just like, what? Um, and part of the reason why is because we paid off our mortgage. So that type of debt was removed from the picture uh, and it lowered it. So now it's a paltry for 
47 <laughs> or a 46. So I want my four points. <laughs> so, you know, I find it so interesting that your score went down when you paid down debt because it, it says so much about the financial system. The financial system loves debt. You know, I yeah, mean, right. that's how banks make their money. Right. But, you know, you mentioned the housing market being challenged. And of course, we all know that higher interest rates than, than certainly the very, very low rates that we saw during the pandemic, low inventory. So, uh, Rana, what about you? What do you what do you advice do you give to folks who are, are looking at the housing market and wondering if they should sell or maybe if they should buy in 2024? Yeah, well, the housing market is just, it's endlessly fascinating to me right now. And it kind of illustrates all the many, many vectors, positive and negative, that are in play right now in the U.S. and the global economy. So let's start with just a little bit of history. House prices have been ticking up for some time, because if you go way back to the great financial crisis in 2008, you had a lot of money, um, you know, uh, Fed essentially did a, a helicopter of, of money to try and raise housing prices, raise asset prices, stock prices to kind of what I would say artificially buoy the economy. I mean, it does make people feel richer when price home prices go up, when stock prices go up. And to a certain extent, that's that's a good thing. But I think that we got maybe more than we needed in that respect because you got and and this happened again after covid you get you know low rates you get um in that case fiscal stimulus which i i do think it was a good thing to to bail out um you know consumers and workers that lost their jobs but essentially you've had a housing bubble that's been created for the last 15 years or so so prices are pretty high well then Suddenly, you get some inflation, uh, post-COVID inflation. You get rates ticking up. And then you've got this sort of perfect storm of prices are high, rates are going up, but prices aren't coming down. Now, that's interesting because usually those things would move um, sort of counter-cyclically. Usually, if interest rates go up, then housing prices would fall. But there's some other things happening that are making the housing market stay um, really buoyant right now. We have a housing shortage in this country, millions and millions of units short on housing. You also have a lot of people like me, for example, and I guess like Michelle until recently, that are locked into low rate mortgages. Mm. So I live, and this is this is a really interesting phenomenon. I live, I'm about to be in a house that is frankly too big for me. I have one child that's left for college. I have another child that is leaving actually for Boston, Northeastern um, yeah. next uh, next fall. And so I'm going to have too much house. Well, my husband and I would love to be able to sell and move someplace smaller. But unless we pay all cash, we're going to be left needing to pay a much higher mortgage rate than we have right now. So the math of us moving doesn't make sense. And that phenomenon is going to stretch out for five years, you know, possibly even 10 years as these mortgages reset. So I think it's going to be harder for the housing market to um, get back to normal than it has been in the past. Hmm. You know, we asked uh, listeners to, to, you know, bring forward their questions for you if they had them. And we did hear something along this along these lines from Elizabeth from Seattle. She left a question about interest rates and mortgages on our On Point Vox Pop app. Let's listen. I'm planning on retiring sometime in the next two years, but with a 2.8% mortgage right now, it's a little hard to think about moving, even though I live in an area I may not be able to afford to live in in retirement. 
So I'm wondering what to do with my house next. That's my big economy question. 2.8%. Those days are gone. Michelle, what (laughs) advice would you give her? You know, I'm in the same boat. Our mortgage was 2.75, and we paid it off. And again, I you mentioned how people were just outraged that we got rid of that debt at such a low rate. Uh, and we have a fairly you know sizable house, up, but in our case, all three of our young adults are still here. But my husband and I had considered uh, downsizing, uh, but it it doesn't make sense for us because we'd have to spend way more to buy even a smaller house. Uh, and so for those who are in that situation, you just have to look at, you know, where else you might be able to cut. If you're getting close, if you've got a, a very manageable mortgage um, and you, there's nothing to do with that, then you just got to look around elsewhere on things. So we have, my husband and I have been combing through all of our expenses, cutting back on things, making sure um, that the cash flow situation for us works, even though our mortgage is paid off. And that's what I've been telling people. You really, this this is the perfect time of year to really go through all of your statements and see where Mm. you can cut. And in some cases, if you can't make it work, you've got to think outside a box. Like maybe, um, you know, if you've got young adults and they're living somewhere close that you, you know, they move in with you or you uh, rent to someone um, to make uh, ends meet. Mm-hmm. Buy, but but buy or sell this year or no? Stay stay out of the market for the time being and, and let it stabilize a bit. Rana? Depen- well, it depends on geography. You know, one thing we haven't even gotten into yet is how the pandemic really affected the housing market because you saw huge migrations from um, the East and West Coast to the West and the South. So, you know, you have certain markets, um, you know, places like Charlotte, for example, um, Austin, Florida, my goodness, Texas, where, you know, housing prices have gone way up. You still have some areas. I mean, Chicago, I have a daughter in Chicago. I mean, that's a city where you can get real estate priced very favorably relative to other large metropolises of the same size. So there's really not what I would not say that there's a national real estate market story anymore. There are lots and lots of fragmented local stories. And you really do have to kind of dig in, as Michelle says, to your particular finances and and where you are geographically. And do we expect interest rates to, to go down in the new year? What would you say, Michelle? Well, the Fed has said, listen, things are going well. Um, the inflation is coming down. They are, they have paused and said they will pause. However, there was a but in that. But if things start to look shaky again, the rates could go up. But I think at least for this first quarter, I think you, you can sort of say rates might stay where they are. Um, but that doesn't mean that those of you who have credit card debt, um, that it's still very expensive debt. Certain debt is still very expensive, and it's going to take a while for that debt uh, to come down. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, as long as we're on this topic, you know, Carol, who who we went to in the beginning, who suggested that we have you on and talk about the economy today, and we took her up on that, of course, um, she mentioned commercial real estate. And I wonder mm-hmm. how that glut of commercial real estate, because so many people are now working remotely, what that does overall. Any effect here in the, in the minute we have before we go to the break, Rana? 
I think that's a it's a huge issue and it's been a looming threat even before the pandemic. But of course, as Carol pointed out, after the pandemic, you have tons of people working from home. Many companies will never go back to five days a week in the office. It is absolutely one of the big risks out there in the economy at the moment. And I think that issues like that, coupled with, you know, conflict in the Middle East, um, war in Ukraine could push interest rates um, you know, maybe not up, but I think could change the inflation picture in ways we may not be fully considering yet. Okay, the Money Ladies will be back after a break. They'll answer more of your questions after in about a minute. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. Today, the On Point Money Ladies, Michelle Singletary and Rana Faruhar, are with us to talk about personal finance and the economy. And we've been taking some of your suggestions and questions. Brianna sent us an email. She's saving to buy a home. And she's asking, what should potential home buyers do with their money right now? Quote, I put some of it in a mutual fund, some in money market, and then I heard it should be invested in treasury, but I haven't done that yet. So what should income earning people do with their money if they're looking to purchase a condo? She says she's been looking for years, hasn't found a place, and she's not sure if her money is being put in the proper place to save it for a real estate purchase. Michelle, what is your advice to Brianna about how to save her money to buy a condo? Yeah, so uh, I'm not a financial planner, so I'm not going to tell her where to put the money. But I will say this, if you're going to be needing that money in five years or less, you want to be conservative with it. We have seen in the last four years how crazy the market was. You know, two years ago, the end of 2021, it was gangbusters. And the last two years, it was like, what happened? Um, And so if you need that money, if that's your down payment, those are your closing costs and and your, your cushion for the home that you you want to be conservative. So you want to keep it in savings-like instruments. Um, you're not going to get a whole lot as if you would invest over time, but that's your safety money and you don't want to play with that money. Again, if you're going to need it in five years or less, you want to be much more conservative than it sounds like money is. 
Mm-hmm. She also had another question, and I'll put this one to you, Rana. She, uh, she wa- wonders about her checking account and the money in there. Mm. This is what she wrote. Every time she gets paid, the money's deposited into her checking account. And even though her expenses are automatically taken out, she still ends up ahead with money accumulating. She says, quote, is it okay to keep all that money in my checking account? Am I being foolish by having 50K sitting around and growing within my checking account? I'm I'm a hands-off type of person. Well, it's really interesting because, you know, one of the things that's happened as interest rates have gone up is that a lot of banks have been offering better rates than they have in the past. I mean, I'm seeing a couple of, I live in New York, a couple of banks in the New York area have been offering even 5% um, rates on on savings accounts. I don't know about checking, but, um, you know, I think, and and I'll just say, I'm not a financial planner either, but I'll, but I'll say what I do with my money right now. I do have um, a nice cushion. I like to keep about a year's worth of uh, spending money. You know, if I should lose my job, I'm the main breadwinner for the family um, in in a savings account, a high yield savings account, uh, FDIC insured. Um, you know, it's a real privilege to be able to have saved that money. I encourage people to to think about doing that, particularly as we may be going into a period where the labor market, which has been pretty robust, you know, could start to see a slowdown. You've got big uh, changes afoot. Things like AI are coming into the workplace. There's going to be a lot of disruption in different kinds of job categories. So I think that that's a great idea. And to go to the, the question that you posed to Michelle about just investments in general, I, because the market is so nuts right now, and I think we should have had a correction ages ago, I think we there will be a reckoning at some point, probably in the next three to five years, and you'll see a bigger correction in the markets. Still, I don't want to miss some of those gains. So I have what folks refer to as a barbell portfolio. I have a lot of money, um, about half my portfolio in index funds, um, heavy on stocks, because I'm 53 and I've got, I, th- I think I can work till about 70. So I, I have time if the market goes down, but I'm also holding a lot of short-term high yield um, vehicles, money markets, treasuries, things like that. And I tend to just, um, you know, keep that barbell going to try and hedge my bets. You know, you talk about the correction, but all we heard about uh, was that there was going to be a recession in 2023. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen. Why not? Right. Well, I think it didn't happen. I'll just quickly say, and then I want to hear what Michelle has to say. I think it didn't happen because of Bidenomics. I mean, I really think that this president has not been given nearly enough credit because if you look at how other large economies fared coming out of the pandemic, the U.S. outperformed everybody. I mean, you know, many European countries had recessions. China's in the middle of a debt crisis. The U.S. has done very well because this president and this administration chose to actually bail out consumers and workers this time around. You know, folks had um, a, a cushion. They, they got checks. They were able to stay afloat and thus consumer spending uh, kept going. You saw a lot of money being poured into infrastructure, manufacturing boom. So, you know, I, I think that that differential is really um, why the U.S. is still in a good place. Mm-hmm. Michelle? I, I completely agree. I, I, you know, whenever I see the these comments like, oh, the economy and Biden, and, you know, I'm thinking, are you looking at the same numbers I'm looking at? And I get that there's some people who are still struggling. They're still digging out from the pandemic. But the Inflation Reduction Act did a lot. It poured money into the IRS. Um, those stimulus payments, and I covered that 
you know, from the beginning to the end, that helped so many people, mm-hmm. even those who didn't necessarily need it, it. It it helped puff up their savings so that when inflation really hit, they had the cushion to, to buy the groceries that they need and, and maybe pay that higher rent. Um, and so I think that, you know, given what we had we could have happened um, with the pandemic. Um, we are in fairly good shape. Now, there's some stuff coming down the road. You know, they still got to do a budget. And, you know, there's wars going on and craziness going on. But I think that if people really looked at their numbers, there's a, a large amount of Americans, number of Americans who who did well and should be clutching their, you know, their hearts thinking, thank you, thank you, mm-hmm. um, that things are, could, what didn't turn out uh, worse than they could have been, right. uh, and and I really would want people to, to to embrace that because if you think things are bad and this, you can make things happen by not really looking at your situation in a realistic viewpoint. Mm. If you if, if I hope people understand what I'm saying, if you're like, oh things are bad, oh things are bad, you'll pull back your spending when you don't need to pull back your spending, and we'll get that recession that we didn't have because you're so fearful and you aren't looking at your numbers to see that you are actually better off um, than you think you are. But you know, I just want to can I can I just interrupt for a moment because I yeah. really do want to play this piece of tape. We heard from a Justin in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. He's a nurse. Uh, and he says, you know, he understands certainly about about the stimulus money from the pandemic. His salary has grown in the past decade, maybe from about 60 to about mid $70,000. It's not enough, he says, especially when it comes to food prices. And he's really, really struggling. So I, I, want, I want to play a little bit of him. And I want you to react to that because you know, the, the pandemic stimulus money was, was three or four years ago, and you've got folks like Justin who are really struggling now with, with skyrocketing costs of food. Let's listen. Groceries, groceries, groceries. My God, the grocery prices are insane. They really are not captured by the national inflation rate average. In July a year ago, a case of soda, uh, like a 12-pack, at my local gas station was three ninety nine. One year later, eight ninety nine. You know, that's an insane jump. But anyways, I, I have a, a, a really fear about being able to feed my family as these prices change ever higher uh, with food, honestly. Yeah. And so, Ronna, what were you going to say about folks really concerned about, uh, like Justin, really concerned about being able to well, feed their families? Uh- a hundred percent. You know, food inflation has been such a huge deal, not just since the supply chain issues of the pandemic, but war in Ukraine. Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe, and it's one of the major grain producers globally that drove up food prices. Also, um, oil and gas prices have been up uh, because of the war in Ukraine. And now because of disruption in Gaza, there's a risk again of, um, of those prices going up. Food and energy are actually related because energy is needed to make fertilizer that raises food prices. But there's another part of the story that I think we haven't hit that's interesting. Corporate price gouging. That has been something mm-hmm. that this administration in the U.S. has looked at and that Europeans are really starting to dig down on, too, because um, some of the biggest food producers and food traders, big commodities traders, have been making 
unbelievable amounts of money over the last few years. And there's really a concern that many corporations, and you hear this on earning calls, you know, you hear um, C-suite folks saying, oh yeah, we can raise prices now in a stealth way because inflation is high anyway, we're not going to get caught. I mean, this is something that um, policymakers are really starting to look at. And it goes to the idea that we have an economy that has become too concentrated. You know, food in particular, agriculture really reflects this. I mean, there's about three, four, five players in areas like grain, meats, poultry. And that is something that the Biden administration has made a big focus, antitrust and monopoly issues. Mm-hmm. Another huge, uh, huge area of costs is healthcare costs, healthcare insurance and, and just healthcare. I think I, I read it's the, the largest single source of debt on Americans' credit reports, which is... Uh, which is a big a big deal, and and we heard from Lisa in Vermont. Uh, she's asking you what what can she do about her health care costs, and what advice do you give, and and suggestions or knowledge about the policies that might shift regarding health care. Let's listen. I was shocked when I received notice that my chest X ray was going to cost me four hundred and twenty eight dollars. I was told a couple things. First, I was told my insurance was billed $620 and my insurance paid a whopping $152. Ouch. How is that right? Insurance company CEOs are making millions. And meanwhile, you know, my tiny family is paying about $8,000 a year for our health care insurance premiums. And then all the copays and everything, it just seems like the we're the little guy and we're getting the shaft. I'm wondering, Michelle, what do you say to folks about you know how to keep your health care costs under control? You know, there's not a lot that we can do um, when you if you work for a company and you're getting it through your company, they negotiate the prices. Um, you know, there is the health care exchange that helps, particularly if you're not making a a lot of money. There's subsidies, so that can help. Um, But really, we have to go back, and we've talked about this on the show for for Ron and I for years, that we've got to have better health care policies. But I have to tell you, when it comes time to vote for that, there's a a large number of Americans who don't go there. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and, And it's a disconnect, right? I mean, look how much time we spent trying to fight, you know, Obamacare. Um, And it did bring down prices for some people. I mean, look at the drug prices. Biden had to fight for that. And so on the one hand, people say that, but then when it comes time to to vote, you're not voting for the people who want to put in place a healthcare system that would actually bring it down and make it more available to more Americans. Can I build on that a little bit and add in childcare to the picture? Childcare is another area in which the the Biden administration has really tried and did uh, during the pandemic offer up a lot of subsidies that allowed women to stay in the labor market. Um, You know, one of the reasons that inflation, again, is as low as it is, given all the things that have been happening in the um, in the world, it could have been a lot higher, is that we have had a labor market where women have been allowed to continue working because we have these 
subsidies through um, uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, Rescue Act that allowed people to stay and work, lowered the cost of childcare. Childcare costs are exploding now, mm. and I'm very, very worried because I, again, just like Michelle said. I don't think that people understand that if you want to have um, the public lower some of these costs, you need to be voting for the right people. You know, I mean, the things that make us middle class, healthcare, um, affordable childcare, education. I mean, these are the things that, that, frankly, Democrats are trying to address and the Biden administration has, has put smart policy plans out hmm. on. You know, we talked about uh, real estate. We've talked about health care. I wonder about folks uh, looking to buy a car. That seems to have improved, oh. right? Is it better now or, it, you know, uh, what are your suggestions regarding that? Michelle, what would you say? Yeah, it's not better. It's and, not. And, and Rhonda just talked about people taking advantage of gouging. I am in the market for a car and I have stopped and I'm going to keep my 2006 Honda Odyssey because they are gouging <laughs> right now. If you want to buy a hybrid or an electric vehicle, they are actually putting in um, markups. So the, there's a manufacturer suggested retail price, right? And then dealerships, because there are so many Americans who are making money who's like, yeah, sure, I'll pay a couple thousand. And we're not talking $500. We're talking thousands over the manufacturer um, retail price, and then if you want a used car, the prices are still high. Um, if you and now, if you want a new car, the average new car is now, you know, it's not reachable for so many Americans. It's like forty or fifty thousand dollars for a new car, and I mean, try to find a used car at a decent price. It is, it, it's crazy out there, and I actually could afford that markup, but on principle, I am not paying you three to five thousand dollars so I can drive. I'm going to drive my car until the wheels come off, and I wish more <laughs> buyers who could do that would do that because I'm, I am so you hit it. Oh, I'm so mad. We could spend the next hour on this. I am so mad. <laughs> Those dealers who are taking advantage of the market right now. I mean, the manufacturer's retail price says, hey, listen, this is a fair price. You're putting money on top of that. And then what that does is those people who pay that, then you price out people who can't pay that. Right. And and that's what concerns me. Those folks who can't make that, um, and particularly in the area I live in, we got an area with a lot of people with a lot of money. And I'm saying, if you can do that, don't do it <laughs> because you are making it difficult for the regular person to buy a car at a decent rate. So that's my rant for the day. I'm so mad right now. <laughs> and this is because, and it's because of price gouging. You would say. That, yes, absolutely. And I don't know if the administration can do anything about that because, you know, I've got a business degree. I understand, you know, the market's bearing it, but it's shameful. It's absolutely shameful. It's, There's somebody out there who's trying to get a car so they could get to work. And, and I, you know, uh, go ahead, Ron. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> don't let me in. I, I always love a good rant, Michelle, especially from you. I always agree with your rants. No, listen, Michelle's absolutely right. There is a lot of corporate price gouging. This always happens in periods of disruption and inflation. I want to add, though, that there's a couple of other interesting things happening. Autos, like housing, reflect a lot of the big um, macroeconomic global shifts in the marketplace right now. Auto, one of the reasons that um, car prices spiked in the pandemic was also supply chain disruptions. There are now some other issues coming down uh, the road, no pun intended. Um, as we shift to EVs, um, EVs actually require a lot of rare earth minerals, you know, things like cobalt and copper. These are used to make the, the, the green batteries that go into these cars. 
there are some major shortages and and China has been doing a lot of ring fencing of those minerals. And so we've seen, um, you know, in areas like lithium, one of the minerals that you need to make these new electric vehicles, we've seen triple digit inflation. Um, that's why this administration is trying to create some new global trade paradigms. Wonky topic, but it affects your pocketbook. All right. This is our uh, annual conversation about the economy. Coming up, we'll talk about politics and how that might be affecting your wallet. That's after the break. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about credit cards on the show, specifically the fees that credit card companies charge merchants for processing payments. Now, retailers have long complained that the fees are higher in the U.S. than they are elsewhere in the world, and they have to pass on those costs to consumers in the form of higher prices. So there is a bill making its way through Congress right now that would significantly limit credit card swipe fees. But the credit card companies say those fees pay for the points that give you perks like free flights or cash back on your monthly spending. So who would really benefit if credit card companies were forced to cut their processing fees? That's why we want to hear from you. Would receiving fewer credit card perks change how you use credit or how many cards you have? Maybe you're a business owner and you're looking at your bottom line wondering who is really paying for all those perks. You can share your experience by recording a message in the On Point Vox Pop app. If you're not if it's not on your phone already, just search for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. You can also leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353 0683. Now we're going back to our conversation with the On Point Money Ladies, Michelle Singletary and Rana Faruhar. They're with us today. And we're going to talk about politics and the economy because I think we've mentioned this earlier in the show, but let's let's dig into this a little bit. And Michelle, let's start with you. Why is there such a disconnect that people are seeing these economic indicators that are overall positive, but for them, the economy's not working. And they're blaming policymakers and political leaders for this. Uh, Why are we seeing such a big disconnect here? 
Well, I think we go back to the call from Justin. You know, they are at the pump. They're pumping their gas. They know it's been up. You you know, he talked about, you know, buying soda and how the soda's up. Although I'd say you can eliminate that by just drinking water. But, you know, I mean, but, you know, we, we look at our daily lives and we measure the politics about what's happening to us. And there's this feel, this anxiety because of inflation. And even if you're not in the housing market, we're talking about it all the time. You know, it's costing much to get a house and then you take on that anxiety and I think that's where you find that disconnect there's no disconnect for people who are struggling they've been struggling and they're like help me I can't pay for my medicine and so I'm going to choose to only take my medicine you know half of the dosage because I I got to stretch this um, and so I think that there's where you see the disconnect. We really are a country of, you know, t- two tales of consumers, those who are doing mm-hmm. well and still feel like what I can't buy, you know, that eight ninety nine soda to someone who's saying I can't. I, I, I can't put enough food on the table for my kid, um, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so uh, if you're not that latter, I think you need to really look at how well you are doing and how you can help and how you vote and who you vote for. I'm not going to tell you who that. I'm just going to tell you that we can't just look at how we are doing. The economy is better when everybody is doing better. Mm. And that, to me, that's the difference. I was at a, at a, at a luncheon and, and this business owner was talking about, oh, you know, I've got to pay my workers more, you know, minimum wage and I've got to raise my prices. And I'm thinking, but of course they need a living wage. And at the same time, this person was talking about buying some, you know, million dollar or million two, you know, house in Florida. And I'm thinking, really, dude, like, seriously, you're complaining Boy, about somebody making yeah. $15 an hour and you're talking about you need to buy a $2 million house in Florida. That's the disconnect right there. Hmm. I didn't say nothing you know, to I'm- a friend of mine, but. <laughs> no, you know what? I want to build on this because these are some really profound points that Michelle is, uh, you know, is making. First of all, that's absolutely true that when inequality is lower, you get a more stable economy. You know, there's often this 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 myth that you have to have um, inequality to have higher growth. That's in the last 40 years or so, that's been increasingly disproven because inequality creates more financial crises. Um, you know, you get bigger debt buildups um, because you're essentially trying to paper over the fact that lower wage people are not able to pay their cost of living um, and they can't keep pace with inflation with debt. So that's that's when you get big credit card debt problems. Um, you also get political instability. And I have to say, I do feel like this country is at a real pivot point moment where, you know, we, we have a real, Americans are very individualistic, right? And on the one hand, there's some great things that come out of that. But on the other hand, there's a sense that I got mine, Jack, you know, or this sort of myth of bootstrapping that ah, everybody can just pull themselves up. Well, one of the reasons that people can pull themselves up historically in this country is that we have, um, you know, a public education system that's decent, that you, that, you know, that you, that you have um, cheap enough land that you can, you know, you, the movement West that you could um, build and buy and grow. That's becoming less and less true. And that is going to come with some extreme consequences if we're not careful. And those consequences will eventually touch the lives um, politically, socially, economically of the wealthy as well as the, the not so well off. Mm-hmm. And do you think the economy is going to be a big factor in the upcoming presidential election? 
Michelle? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Ronnie, you say oh, yes? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So both of you do. What about the effect of politics on people's thinking? You know, we, we heard uh, from Kale in Spokane, uh, Washington, and, and he says, you know, there's a lot going on here and there's a lot and it, it's really kind of anxiety provoking about politics and the economy. Let's listen. My biggest concern about the economy is politics. If something were to go bad in November and there were to be large upheavals and civil disturbances, it could really affect the economy and affect our ability to to run this country. That's really the biggest threat right now. I wonder, Rana, do you think that that potential instability uh, around the presidential election uh, is something that's uh, in people's minds right now as well? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm just I'm an opinion columnist and I'll just because I'm a registered Democrat. I don't think that's a big, you know, surprise to anybody. But I'll just come and go go ahead and say what what I think is going to happen politically around the elections. Um, I think let, let's just say that you were to get a Trump victory. I've written a column about this recently. Some people would say, well, the last time that we had President Trump, you got, you know, higher stock markets, you got tax cuts. There was a sort of a temporary stimulus effect. I don't think that would be the case this time. I think what what is going to happen you're, if you were to get another if you were to get Trump too, I think that you would get a much more insular defended president. I think you would get a, some really hardline tariffs um, that would have a, a a big hit in in the stock market. Um, I think that you would see. Uh, borrowing costs go up because you would see allies and adversaries alike worried about this political stability of this country. So yes, I am I am very worried, and I'm just going to say it. I I think that it is a moment where people need to think carefully. I also think just to go back to why people haven't really registered on how great this economy is, given all the headwinds. Two things are in play here. One. Consumer sentiment is a trailing indicator. So I think it takes not just one, but two, three, four quarters of, okay, you know, the jobs numbers are still pretty good and inflation's coming down, you know, that, and for people to really take that in. So I think you might start to see that in the, in the first half of this year and people feeling more comfortable. I also think it's very difficult to message counterfactuals. Let's just look, had you not had a very smart administration um, in which everybody was rowing in the same direction and you had some very smart handling of policy from the White House and the Federal Reserve as well, um, you could, you, you, we could have had a Great Depression. I mean, we had, a, we have two hot wars. We've had a pandemic. We have a major decoupling going on with China, our largest trading partner. All kinds of things happening. Things could have been so much worse than they are. And in fact, we're, we're in a kind of a Goldilocks period. But it's difficult to get people to understand that because counterfactuals are hard to message. Hmm. Michelle, I hear you. Did you want to jump on that? I, it sounded like you wanted to add to that. <laughs> I mean, I love Rana. She says, she says it so much more eloquently than I do. But no, it's absolutely true. And there are some things coming down the road that we have to deal with, like Social Security. If we have a split government, and not just a split government, but a government which can't do anything because they're fighting over nonsense sense, um, then we are not going to get a, a legislative body that is looking at health care, drug prices, Social Security, which is not bankrupt, but it's going to have a funding issue sooner rather than later. Um, and health care and child care and all those things that need to be 
people coming to the table who are sensible and looking out for all of America, not just their pocket of America. And that's what I fear that we will. I mean, we didn't get much done other than the maybe the Inflation um, Reduction Act um, this past year because of the the the. the, the I, I just—they're I, just idiots. I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> There's so many idiots in Congress, and they are so removed from the regular folks um, who just want to buy a house at a decent rate, want to send their kids to school where they don't have decades of debt, want to buy their drugs for their, you know, their illnesses, and or go and have preventive health care so they don't end up with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't have a legislative body that is cogent enough and, and, and focus enough on that to come together for policies that will benefit all of America. And um, I just, you know, I, I, I fear, like Rana, what will happen in November. Uh, and uh, I just, I worry. And I see the regular people. I have a ministry at my church, so I work with people at all income levels. And I see those who are struggling and I see those who are doing well. And uh, I would just, I would love for a more focus on the policies that will lift uh, a lot of people up uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people, they just want a living wage and an ability to send their kids to college or buy a house or buy a car that doesn't take them eight years to pay off. Mm-hmm. Well, I want I want to talk about predictions for 2024. We're kicking off the new year and I want to know, I know we've, we've talked about some of them, but I, I would like to hear both of you reflect on what you think will be some of the, the strong points and the weak points in the year ahead. What what would you say, Rana? And and I have to ask: Is crypto finally dead? I mean, we need to. <laughs> I just have to get God, that I in here so. before. Oh, we man, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I've been on this show saying, please don't buy Bitcoin. Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of people at this point realize, boy, that's a heck of a speculative asset, and uh, and I'm out of there. So, you know, we can talk about digital currency another time. I do think that there's a place for it in cent- ba- you know central bank backed digital currency is a whole other thing. But crypto, yeah, don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. In terms of predictions, um, one thing I'll say, and maybe I'll try and end on a bright note here. Um, in my, I've been doing this job for 33 years. Often the action is where we aren't looking and where we where we aren't thinking what we aren't talking about. And there are a lot of things that we can be worried about. We've talked about many of them on the program already. Mm-hmm. But there is an optimistic story as well here. I mean, we have, thanks to the smart handling of the Biden administration and some very lucky tailwinds to the U.S. economy, we've gotten through a lot of um, bad moments. It is possible if the Fed is right and you see three more, and they've said this, which is very rare for the Fed to say, we think we can do three rate cuts and that we will not need to disrupt the labor market to do it. I mean, let's take them at their word. You know, if, if that's true, that's a pretty good picture for the coming year. That's not to say that you you know you might not see some action in the stock market, but but that's about as good of a prediction um, as as one could hope for in 2024. And so, 
you know, fingers crossed uh, that Jay Powell's right. Mm. And what would you say, Michelle, for for predictions for 2024 and about crypto? <laughs> yeah, well, crypto is just you're an idiot. Stop buying. It. You know, it's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's ridiculous. Done. It's so speculative drop. for the <laughs> for the regular person. Um, if you don't have money that you can just burn, then you know, don't do it. Um, I am concerned. Um, predictions about credit card debt. Uh, it hit a trillion uh, in 2023, um, mm-hmm. and it was a robust holiday shopping. So I am concerned about the amount of debt that people are racking up and then carrying over. More than about 50% of people don't pay their bill off every month. Um, but I am optimistic. I know I sort of went on this whole rant about cars and stuff like that. But I am optimistic that we did skirt a, a big, huge thing in 2023. You know, everybody was like 50-50 recession. And so I I'm, I'm optimistic that we will uh, hopefully get uh, a legislative body in November that will come together to deal with some of the issues that are of utmost importance to Americans in terms of health care, drug prices, child care, and Social Security. I'm very concerned about that, and I'm hoping that they will take that mantle up. I'm optimistic that they, the government has put more money into the IRS to, you know, to, to hire more people, make it easier for people to file and also collect because, hey, guys, I know we all fear the IRS, but they actually collect the money that runs the government. And if they can collect more of the money that is due from those wealthy folks who are not paying their fair share, that's better for all of us. So I'm optimistic about that. Uh, And um, I'm not typically a half glass full kind of gal, uh, but I am because I, 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 I see what is happening and I see people's paychecks and I see their their bank accounts and I know that there is room for people who can to do better. And I think that having skirted the recession, hopefully that's a wake up call for people to know that that if you've got room in your budget, you need to save more, save for retirement, cut that credit card debt, and then be generous to the people around you. If you've got space in your home and you know someone needs help, help them. Uh, so I'm optimistic about 2024. I think we're going to have more in 2024. All right. More in 2024. You've got a slogan in everything, Michelle. That's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. All right. Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. Her column, The Color of Money is nationally syndicated. She's also author of the book, What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits, A Survival Guide. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. It was great fun. Oh, thank you for having me. Love being on there with you guys and Rana. She's like my girl. All right. All right. (laughs) Rana Faruhar is a CNN global analyst and the Financial Times global business columnist and associate editor. She's author of books, including Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. Rana, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me as always. And thanks to Michelle too. And more in 24, ladies. We're going to have to somehow patent that saying, I think. (laughs) Thanks so much. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point.